The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, maybe you'll see why we waited a week before we uh, picked up this text in uh, 1 Peter 3. It's a very difficult passage, one that... Uh, this is the beauty of preaching entire books of the Bible, is you don't get to pick and choose the passages that you like. And so these passages that at first glance and even at further glance are difficult, uh, yet we need them because ultimately we know this is God's word and it's for his glory and for our good. And so we want to see how is God glorified and how is this for our good this morning, not just for husbands, not just for wives, but for both. And so let's give attention to this passage. First Peter 3, I'm going to read 1 to 12, but I'm only going to be preaching on verses uh, 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, <clears throat> the braiding of hair, <clears throat> excuse me, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open up our eyes to see Jesus. Pray that you would open our eyes to understand this text and illuminate it and apply it down deep into the recesses of our hearts. May we come into the light fully. We pray that we would not live in darkness or in shadows we ask that you would speak to us and that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And we thank you for this portion of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I do want to just clear a little bit of debris as we, we start this text together this morning. Um, and, and if you look at the kind of the bigger context of First Peter, you'll see that um, if you look back at chapter 2, and beginning at verse 11 and 12, we are told 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls, and we're to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so now we're going to look at what doing good is and what these good deeds are. And then he gives different headings, and he deals with how we're to respond to government. And that's from verses 13 to 17, is be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he talks about the purpose of these authority structures and how the purpose of government is to punish uh, those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Then after that section, he moves to the next section of being uh, servants being subject to your masters with all respect. And, and not only to the good, but even to those that are, that are not good, to the unjust um, or to the crooked. And we, we've talked about that before. And then we, we're following this example of Christ and we're told um, in verse 21 that to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you or in your behalf, leaving you an example. What's the example? Suffering. You are called to suffer, each of us personally, so that you might follow in his steps. Well, how did he suffer? And then he talks about how he committed no sin. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And now he turns to wives and he says, likewise, and he deals with wives, and we'll deal with that section of verses one to six, to be subject to your own husbands. And then he deals with likewise husbands, okay? And then you have a finally to conclude this section, and that's verses eight to 12, so that this applies to everybody, all of you. All of us are to have this sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind, and so, just the, the authority structure is helpful to understand where Peter is going. He lays out these four different, uh, three different areas of government, uh, employment, and then marriage. And he's laying out these different authority structures and, and just clearing some debris. First of all, I mean, I think we, we see a text like this and in our culture and context, particularly our cultural climate and the Me Too movement and things like that, people have been hurt. Um, and people have abused texts like this and others. And if this, this text can be used as, as a weapon, I just want to call that out as evil. And if you're a wife here and your husband is using this as a weapon against you in any way, and you are either being physically abused, emotionally abused, or sexually abused, you need to seek help. And our elders are available to help. I am there to help. And professionals are there to help. So. This is not about that. And if, and if you are using this as a husband as some type of tool or weapon against your spouse, shame on you. <laughs> you need to repent. Um, that's not what this passage is talking about. And I think, um, you know, as you think about what sin is and part of what sin is, it's taking a good thing and using it for selfish and sinful purposes using something that's good for its non-intended purpose. An airplane is a very good thing, is it not? But if you 
turn it into a missile and crash it into a building, now you've turned something good into something that's evil. A gun is a good thing, whether you're hunting or protecting yourself, but to use it to kill people in mass shootings is pure evil. A car is a good thing, but to turn it into a weapon and run over people is pure evil. Sex is a great gift. It is cement for a covenant in marriage, and it's used for procreation. But outside of a covenant bonds of marriage, now you've taken something that God intended one way and are using it in another way, and it actually brings great pain when this epoxy and the cement is not in the covenant bonds of marriage. Authority is a gift from God and it should be used to serve. And we live, we live with so much authority all the time that we, it is just in the air you breathe. I mean, you get on a plane and you instantly know you're not in charge, right? And you know that when the stewardess says, hey, seat tray up, move that seat forward, what do you do? You move your seat forward and you put the, the tray in the upright position. I can't even walk into Sam's and I've got to show a badge. And I can't get out of Sam's until I show a receipt. We live in authority all around us. But we have to recognize that we bristle at a text like this partly because we're a fallen creation. And now part of the covenant curse, or the curse that's given in Genesis 3, is that the woman's desire would be for her husband, and he shall rule over you. That's in the context of a curse. And we recognize work is cursed. There's no job that doesn't come with difficulties. And by the sweat of your brow, are you going to labor? No marriage is going to be easy. There's going to be this desire to take over his role. And then he's going to want to uh, take over as well. And so there's a lot of dying up to self that has to happen. And so we can use uh, text for wrong purposes. But I think it's important that we just back up a step and recognize that what Peter is getting at is he's calling wives to be subject to, to their husbands, how to win him, and then husbands are called to dwell with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. And so, first of all, we have to recognize that God has given headship responsibilities to a husband, and he's done that for his intended purposes to show off, because we're living in this metaphor and this simile of Christ in the church. And that the husband is to represent Christ and he is to sacrificially love his wife. And that the wife in turn is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And if you do away with the metaphor or the simile, which is used seven times in Ephesians 5, um, you really miss the point of, of marriage, of what is, God is trying to convey. And so I just want to remind you, I just want to read this text in Ephesians 5. Just listen to what word is used the most. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. 
He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What is the husband called to do? Love his wife. It's seven times in that passage the word love is drawn out. And yet when you hear Ephesians 5, what do, you, what do our ears tend to hear? <laughs> Maybe not that. So the husband is called to love his wife, and the way that he's to love her is we get these verbs like gave himself up for her, love their wives as their own bodies, uh, nourish and cherish, just as Christ does the church. Does that look like something that's oppressive or abusive? I don't think so. The wives are called to submit to their husbands, and that just isn't just here in 1 Peter 3, 1. It's actually four times in Scripture. It's in 1 Peter 3, it's in Colossians 3, Titus 2, and Ephesians 5. The husband isn't commanded to be the head of the home. He is the head. That's an indicative, not an imperative. And so the husbands are to do this. They are to lovingly and sacrificially lead, and the wife is called to follow. So I just want to point out from this text a couple things that are just radically um, countercultural, even in this culture. So first of all, if you think that sub submission is like to be a doormat and that you know, you're just to follow whatever your husband says, um, the whole point of the text is for the wives to win their husbands. That's where he's going with this. Wives, how do you do this? How are you going to win him? How are you going to gain him? And even if some aren't believers, how are you going to gain them? How are you going to win them? So she's trying to bring about change. So if you think submission means don't bring about any change in the home, well, that's clearly wrong in the first verse. If you just look at what He's saying, how are you going to bring it about? And so we'll get to that. And so, um, so that's the first thing. The second is, what was so radical, why this would have been such a radical word, is that in the culture and context, wives followed their husbands. They followed their husbands' gods, and they followed the friends of their husbands' gods. Your god and your friends didn't matter anymore. Once you married in that Roman culture and your husband followed these set of gods, guess what you now do? You follow them and you follow his friends who followed him. And so Peter's actually giving something radical because he's saying, you submit, but you're not submitting in that. You're trying to actually win him to follow Jesus. And so this was a radical word because the women didn't do that in that culture that we're not Christians. So these women are be have become Christians, some have unbelieving husbands, some have believing husbands, and Peter is writing a word of marriage of how is this gonna work. Um, and so um, he's getting at how do you win them? And basically you kind of have two options. You've got the external option or the eternal option. 
And that's the title of the message. Because you see that what is going on here is this word adorning, is the big word. Verse three, adorning. Verse four, adorning. Verse five, adorning. Or adorn themselves. So this is a pretty big word here, right? So the idea is that is your adorning the way that you beautify yourself, is it external or internal? Is it something that's, that you are, your audience is ultimately God and your hope is in God? Or is it in yourself and in your beauty and your looks and your be, being able to control the narrative that way? And so he says, don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. He's not saying don't, don't, don't put on any, don't ever braid your hair, don't ever put on gold jewelry, because if that was the case, then he would also say, don't wear any clothes, and obviously you need to wear clothes, so if you're going to hold to that, you'd have to hold all three, and you just can't do that. The idea is, is your energy and your focus, is it on the externals, or is it on something else? Because if you think about it, there's kind of the Hollywood way of doing things. And it goes all the way back to this culture and context here. But the idea is that if you are gonna land a lead part, and even if you're gonna be a singer in today's culture, you have to be pretty. And if you're gonna get the lead part in a rom-com or any type of part that's a lead part, your looks really matter, particularly if you're the woman. And you have to be outwardly beautiful and that has this very subtle power of exerting influence on the guy. I forget what movie it was. Um, I was watching some rom-com and she's trying to win her guy and she's trying to find the right outfit to do so. And so the movie kind of goes into fast forward as she tries on like 30 different outfits and she comes out and it's this outfit, nah, that's, her friends are saying no and she, you know, and then you just keep seeing her trying all, the, all these different outfits to find the right outfit so she can win her guy. Win him by externals. That's the culture, that's our culture today. Win him and then you post it on your, your social media. Everything is just, we are a culture that's uh, on steroids, on the, on the outward appearance. And it's really interesting, the, the word cosmetics comes from this word that's in this text, and it's actually the word cosmos, where we get the word world, but the idea is uh, this external emphasis. And our culture is very much into that. And you've got to wear the right clothes, you've got to have the right fashion, and the adorning can be focused totally uh, on the outward. And so the, he gives a negative. Peter is saying, don't do that. You, it, it doesn't mean don't be frumpy or be frumpy. It means if you think that your, your beauty and your outward form is going to win him, then you're putting your energy and the emphasis in the external basket. And you need to let that go. Rather focus on the eternals. What is precious in God's sight, it says, Verse four, to end of verse four. Not what's precious in your, in, you know, outwardly, but what is gonna be precious to God. And the adorning that's precious to God is this gentle and quiet spirit. There's something that's tranquil and sublime. And we're told in Proverbs about the woman folly and her way is loud and her feet never stay at home, it talks about. There is something about this loudness 
that's not pleasing. And it doesn't mean that you're not to be ever say anything. Matter of fact, I mean, it says, you know, so you can win them um, without a word. Well, if you look over at chapter 3, verse 15, he does give this context of when a word is really helpful. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Being, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. When are they going to ask you? They're going to ask you when something, they see something really different about you. Why are you doing that? Why are you acting this way? This is... So, there is a time to speak. But what Peter is getting at is the way to, to win, you know, this way of winning your, your man is not going to be by nagging. It's not going to be by reminding constantly. It's not going to be by preaching, fretting, quarreling, henpecking. None of that's going to work. And it's not going to work with this, with this outward emphasis. Most of you are familiar with Monica, who was Augustine's mom. And she prayed for him. And her prayers and her tears eventually led Augustine into the kingdom. Well, she had an unbelieving husband, and he too was converted shortly before his death. I didn't know this. I just came across this this week. Augustine wrote in his confessions, she served him as her Lord and did, not, and did her diligence to win him unto thee, preaching thee unto him, by her conversation, which in quotes or in brackets is behavior, by her conduct, by which thou ornamentest her, <laughs> adorned her, <laughs> making her reverently amiable unto her husband. She was an amazing woman, and her, and her prayers and her patience and her conduct eventually did win over Monica's husband to the Lord. If you think about the context of the wisdom literature of the Proverbs, we're given a few pictures and metaphors of both a good wife and the bad wife. And the book ends with, thankfully, the, 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 this incredible picture of what the excellent wife looks like. But before that, we're given three snippets of what the bad wife would look like. And, and we're told in Proverbs 21, 9, that it's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And sometimes there are husbands that move to different regions of the house because of that. And then he says in 21, 19, it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. That's pretty scary imagery. Better to be in the desert than with a quarrelsome and fretful wife. Proverbs 27, 15, and 16, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to, is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. It's just unpleasant and impossible. That's a pretty bad picture. But then the positive picture of which the whole book ends on this note. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of game. Gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness, or hesed, 
God's covenant faithful love is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. You see, I think this is a similar idea here in 1 Peter 3, that what's pleasing in God's sight is this gentle and quiet spirit. And we have here this husband praising his wife of this excellent life of virtue. You see, what's interesting is we read this morning, we just read a text and we probably, you probably read right over it and didn't even catch the line. But if you look back in your bulletin and you look at the, the last reading we did from Genesis 18, this is the passage where we are told that Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Well, how did she obey him? Well, it was in some super fast hospitality on the fly. Quick, three seas of flour and knead it. That was, I mean, boom, three guests are here. And we're told, you know, as we get to the story that it's like the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, one of them is definitely Jesus. And the one is speaking as the Lord that you're going to have a son next year. And then Peter's picking up on the fact that um, she calls Abraham Lord. Where in the world in the text does it say that? Well, it's, it's, she's musing to herself and her true colors are revealed because she's speaking to herself, but she speaks out loud. She laughs to herself and says, after I'm old and worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She could have easily mused to herself and have said, I'm old and worn out, and my louse of a spouse is old. Is that what she says? See, what's interesting is her attitude of respect and honor towards her husband is Peter is seeing this from afar, and he sees this is what she privately thinks about him when no one's around. And he's, he's holding that up and commending that and putting a spotlight on this obscure verse. And I think the idea here is that a spouse, sometimes you can hear your spouse talk to their friends or on the phone or they say something and you either are gonna feel honored or dishonored. You're gonna have a sense of respect or disrespect that they're grateful or ungrateful. And how we speak about our spouse is incredibly important. And Peter's wanting these Christian women to gain their husbands. And he's saying the way to do it is like Sarah did. And out of this love for him and respect for him, she followed him and she trusted. And they weren't perfect. I mean, both of them, when they got the promise from God in Genesis uh, 15, when Abraham first hears this response that you're gonna have a child, you know, he, he says, uh, I think it was, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. You know, that was his initial response, you know, like, oh, that Ishmael might, and the Lord's saying no. And, and, and Sarah, she laughs when she first hears this. And then, she's, then 
you know, she says she didn't laugh. And, and the angel of the Lord, which is most likely Jesus, saying, no, no, you did laugh. And so God has called uh, each of us to do some hard things here. So the husbands are called to dwell or live together with your wives in an understanding way according to knowledge. The idea is that husbands need to know their wives. What does she love? What does she hate? What frustrates her? What are her feelings? What are her needs, fears, hopes, dreams? And sometimes in counseling with a guy, and you know, it's like, should I do this or that? Know your wife. Know your wife. Can she handle that? But the context here is also that the wife is the weaker vessel. And we're seeing that in our culture. I don't think this is anything all that profound. We're seeing right now where men are becoming women and taking over the sports worlds by competing in what used to be a woman's sport. And so a guy doesn't do real well swimming, but if I become a woman, now I can swim really well. Not that every man is stronger than his wife, not every man is taller than his wife, but as a general principle, men are stronger than their wives, and it puts their, their wife in a position of vulnerability, and men need to know that. That the men are stronger, and sometimes they have used their strength not in a good way, but in a sinful way of abuse. So recognize that, men, because what he's getting at here for the woman is, is, is she is in a vulnerable place to follow her husband. And, and she's being called here, you're her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. Well, what might be frightening? <laughs> Following a husband who I think I know that I'm smarter than. And this has nothing to do with competency. It has to do with headship and following. It doesn't mean don't speak your mind and that men shouldn't be acting um, you know, without respect for their wives and hearing them. I think I've shared this story before with our marriage when we first got married. Um, my, we had a car that we were gonna get rid of because we were, we were, Kim was pregnant with Haddon and we had a car that was still in good shape and there was a family in the church who was a single mother and had a, had a son and I wanted to help this young man get a start in life because they, they, were, they were poor. And I sold him the car for a buck, for a dollar. And she told me, I don't think he can handle this car. And I said, I think he can. I think he can, I'm gonna help him. It was a stick shift, I'll teach him how to drive it, I'll teach him how to drive this stick. And she said, I don't think he's ready for this. But she, at the end of the day, she followed me. And we gave this car to this guy for a buck. And he pulled out in front of a car when he was driving it without his license, had his learners, and got T-boned and almost killed and hit right behind the driver door and totaled the car. And she never said to me, I told you so. She didn't have to. Um, she was right. And I've listened more carefully since then. But she followed me on that. Even though I was, my wisdom was not so great uh, in that. Um, so I think for us, I mean, when it talks about things that are frightening, 
men, you have to be very careful recognizing it's not easy for a woman to follow you. But I do think that most women love to know that it's not on me at the end of the day. It's on you. Adam came looking, God came looking for Adam. And if men are leading like they should be leading, sacrificially and caring for their wives and nourishing and cherishing them, a godly woman actually loves that. She, that's what she wants to follow. But she's putting herself in a position of vulnerability to do so. And so these are, these are difficult words. And I would just say as we come to the table this morning, as a reminder of what marriage is really all about, is a call to die to self. And men are to show honor to the weaker vessel. That means not to resent that they may be weaker physically in some areas, not always. But you're, you're to show honor. You're not to despise. You're not to look down on. You're not to take advantage of. You're not to exploit, control, overpower, or use things to your advantage. Mike Mason, in his classic book that he wrote in the 80s called The Mystery of Marriage, which is a great book on marriage because most marriage books kind of feel like a textbook. This feels more like a mystery novel um, where he's bringing out the profoundness of marriage and it doesn't read like a textbook. And he says this in this Mystery of Marriage book. This is kind of a classic now because this book's like 40 years old. Um, he says, marriage cannot succeed first of, without, first of all, a profound acceptance of the conditions of struggle, the state of personal siege in which it must be lived out, and secondly, without an ever-growing realization that one's own self cannot and must not emerge as the winner of this struggle. He who is least among you, says Jesus, he's the greatest, and marriage at its best is a sort of contest contest in what might be called one-downmanship, a backwards tug-of-war between two, wheel, two wills equally determined not to win. That is really the only attitude that works in marriage because that's the way the Lord designed it. He planned it especially as a way for men and women to enter wholeheartedly with full consent and consequent peace and joy into the inevitable process of their own diminishment. Isn't that what it's like to follow Christ and to remember our calling? That the husbands are called to sacrificially love and this leadership and headship is not to be tyranny, it's to be tender. It's not to be lording it over his wife, but laying down his life. And his wife in return is called to loving submission, not because of chauvinism, chauvinism but because of God's creation. Not because she's subordinate, but because they have different roles to play in marriage. Let's consider that as we come to the table and we're reminded of this great marriage supper of the Lamb of which we get a foretaste and we see Jesus' incredible love for us and he laid down his life for us as the bridegroom for his church, his bride, the lover of our souls. Let's pray together. Father, take these words now and we ask that fruit would, good fruit would come out of our hearts and help us to see how great your love is for us. And we thank you, despite our failures and all the ways that um, our marriage has not 
lived up to this standard. We ask that you'd have mercy and that you'd forgive us. And we ask for your help to redeem our marriages for your glory. We ask in your name. Amen.